pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Welcome everyone. My name is David Guimarães Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, try to say that three times in a row. And I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And I'm so excited for the release of this episode from my podcast, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Now, you might ask me, why such an awesome name? Well, I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in the United States for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes, so next time you interview someone, keep that question in mind. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, how can we evolve as people, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around a table, and even which ingredients are overrated and underrated, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on all the platforms that you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. I hope you have an amazing time listening to every episode. And don't forget I'm Portuguese, so if something doesn't sound exactly right, just move on because life is too short. Our guest today was born in Kakovka in Ukraine. Following the financial crisis of 2008, she decided to quit her job as a film business reporter to pursue her dream for cooking. She began her chef career after completing a course at the Leeds School of Food and Wine in London. After working in a few restaurants, she started writing recipes for food magazines. Her journey has been very successful. In 2015, she wrote Mamushka, Recipes from Ukraine and Beyond, which I bought a few years ago and I'll try to figure out a way for her to sign it. In 2017, Caucasus, the cookbook, a journey through the Wild East, and this year in July, she released a book, Summer Kitchens, Inside Ukraine's Hidden Places of Cooking and Sanctuary. She won Observe Rising Star in Food 2015, and she was a winner of Fortnum and Mason Debut Food Book Award 2016. Aliyah Hercules, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. How are you today? I'm really well, yes. <laughs> Better now. How are you? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> so we'll start with two important questions. Have you ever been to Portugal? No, I haven't. It's my dream to go, actually. Is it? If I said I was from Liechtenstein, would you say that? Oh, no. I, <laughs> well, I don't know. You, you tell me. No, it's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country. Do you know any Portuguese words? Saudade. Did That's I a, pronounce it right? They did. And actually, there's no direct translation in English. So for those of you listening, you have to go figure it out. Yes. <laughs> so before we start talking about your books and all of that, I read in a few interviews that your family actually had a troubled history during the Soviet era. How did that influence you growing up? Well, we grew up kind of listening to all sorts of stories with, you know, in my family, storytelling was extremely important. So we would sit on this long table, basically, and, you know, everyone would cook before and then we'll sit there and we'll have this really big extended family. And we'd get together quite a lot, actually, in the past with everyone, especially in the summer. And these stories would come out. And of course, a lot of the stories that are connected to the Second World War, deportations, Ukraine's famine, you name it. You know, it's been a super turbulent history for us. 
And, but the adults talked about it all the time. It was very much at the forefront of our conversations. So there'd be funny stories as well, you know, they'd be laughing. And then at some point they'd start crying and us as kids, you know, we're just running around and then we're like, what's going on? But then once you're getting a little bit older, you start tuning in a bit more. And honestly, some of the stuff, some of the stories that have been told, I almost can picture them. They were so expertly told that my family are like such amazing storytellers. I can almost picture it. And sometimes it feels like a false memory almost, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it's, it's definitely influenced my interest in history in general and also my family history. And it kind of informed uh, me a lot and inspired me to write my third cookbook, Summer Kitchens, because I was really interested to travel around Ukraine and to discover or rediscover old and perhaps forgotten traditions and dishes. Because during the Soviet Union, you know, individuality, any kind of cultural idiosyncrasy have all been beaten down. You weren't allowed to be different, you know, you were allowed to standardize Soviet uh, kind of cooking in the canteens and stuff. People, of course, still cook uh, in, in rural areas, etc. But a lot of that stuff, including ingredients that were popular in Ukraine, you know, we used to use asparagus at the, in the beginning of the 20th century, and that w- was completely wiped out. So for me, it was, yeah, it just kind of inspired me to go and look for those stories and for those recipes and kind of untangle Ukraine in a way and its yeah. regionality. Is there any story that always touch you uh, in a specific way that, you know, you're family used to uh, tell that you can share? Yes, so many. Does it have to be food related or? Something that inspired you or something that was, there was a story that you always remember. It doesn't have to be food related. Oh, okay. I don't know how it. You can pass. You can say I pass on this one. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, it, they're just kind of like quite intense and, and really upsetting actually quite a lot of the time. Well, one of them, and it, it is a very sad one and it is food related, but after the Second World War, it was the late 40s, my grandfather was driving somewhere along the road and basically went out and started collecting some of the wild grasses that were uh, growing on the road because you could eat them and he he could have taken them to his family. And the Soviet authorities caught him and they imprisoned him for seven years because they said that he was trying to steal wheat And yeah, he just went away for seven years. And the only reason why they actually finally released him earlier than he was supposed to is because Stalin died. So Stalin died in 1952, 53, I think. Yeah. Yeah, And this story of um, how they found out that Stalin was dead, that was something that in my mind, as I say, one of those really bright, not memories, I said memories, uh, stories that have been told that feels like a memory. So my grandmother says, oh, we were sitting in the the living room and then I see my daughter... uh, my sorry my sister-in-law running from outside and crying and she's like oh my god Stalin's dead Stalin's dead and my grandmother says that she quickly kind of like wet her fingers with with her saliva and like pretend you know put it on her cheeks and was like oh Mm -hmm. you know pretending that she was really upset and then she went to the next room and she said to another relative and she was like you know that bastard is dead they're gonna let Victor out yeah Uh, But it always kind of like, I have goosebumps now just thinking about it, that she had to pretend in front of her sister-in-law, you know, someone who's so close, but maybe different kind of like mindset. She had to pretend to be crying because Stalin was dead. So yeah, things like that are definitely 
Thank you for powerful stories. Yes, powerful (laughs) stories. How important is food to Ukrainians into their national identity? Oh, extremely important. And again, I think uh, really horrific things that have happened in the past have informed and influenced uh, that importance. You know, as we know, there was Holodomor in the 1930s, so artificial famine when uh, people were locked in their villages, essentially, not allowed to come out. And all of the wheat has been taken out and people starved to death. I mean, it was like, it was a really, really horrific thing. This was practically genocide. The only reason why I exist probably is because my grandmother came from a, you know, a well-to-do farmer family. So they were kulaks. Mm-hmm. And her, her siblings, she was little still, she was a child in the 30s. And her mom were sent off in the train like cattle, you know, into Siberia. And they were thrown out in the forest in the middle of winter. But they survived. They found one of the brothers died, but they survived this ordeal. Meanwhile, her father was left in this Ukrainian village and he nearly died in the street. But then there was, I don't know whether it was say, there was a Jewish doctor that was the family doctor. And he was walking by and he saw my grandfather half dead. And he basically picked him up, took him to the hospital and put him into this uh, section where um, all of the typhoid patients were lying. Mm -hmm. And he hid him there. And by luck, he didn't contract the typhoid, but also the authorities, Soviet authorities didn't go there to check. So he survived Holodomor and my grandma survived somehow Siberian winter and whatever. You know, they found a couple of nice Russian families who have kind of taken them in and they did work there, whatever. Eventually they came back to Ukraine and were all reunited about that one brother that died. But yeah, so I think there is in general, I think I don't want to generalize or put a stereotype on it, but I think in general there is an anxiety that we feel as a nation and it feeds, again, I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but I think because Ukraine was such an open country and attacked so many times, you know, you're constantly in this state of anxiety and also, and and we say, we even joke, we say, oh, you know, it's the Ukrainian national pastime worrying. Mm -hmm. And I think these hunger years as well uh, have put their mark on the way that we feel about food. You know, there's constant kind of almost force feeding. I mean, you find it in a lot of countries, of course, but there's thing like, oh, eat. Or, you know, one of my aunties used to say her definition of a really good boy was, oh, he's a really good boy. He eats so well, you know. So there's definitely um, this kind of thing going on. And my, I, you know, my dad, even with his mom, who's originally from Siberia, actually, she's Russian. Every time we'd come to visit her, she would, you know, the table would be groaning with so many dishes that she's cooked for us. Mm-hmm. And he'd just say, oh, mama, we're not in the, you know, 20th century anymore. It's the 21st century. You don't need to cook so much. You can just make one thing and it's fine. We'll be happy. You know, he always used to tell her off. And me and my mom would be like, please relax. Get off her back. You know, just let her do this, <laughs> like if it makes her happy. Yeah. So yeah, it's so, a really great question. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> you, so you grew up around great cooks, right? Your grandma, your mom. What was your absolutely favorite dish that, for instance, your grandma used to make? And is there anything that you haven't quite mastered yet of her? So a dish that is very special from my grandmother would be something that we call nudli. I think, I suspect that it has a Germanic origin because there's a dish called strudli that is very similar to it. And basically what you do is, the original version is either pork ribs or duck. 
something quite nice fatty meat mm-hmm. and you you brown it and then you put it into a big kind of cast iron pan you brown it in a cast iron pan you add onions and kind of like wedged potatoes some versions also have either cabbage or kraut but we didn't do this it was very simple in that in that sense but the quality of meat and vegetables was so amazing those three ingredients were just incredible yeah and what you do is on top you put these dumplings on and uh, the dough is made with kefir and a little bit of soda and you roll it up almost like and cut it so it looks almost like a cinnamon bun. Mm-hmm. Exactly like a cinnamon bun actually. So it's like a savory cinnamon bun and you put them on top of the stew tightly together and then you cover it with a lid. And actually before you put it in, my grandma always used to say, you need to wait until the, the stew has enough spirit in it. And I think she meant when it was kind of like on the rolling boil. I love those expressions. And you would put the dumplings in, cover it with the lid and then you would cook them and then basically on the bottom it would soak in they would soak in all of these kind of meaty delicious juices and on top they would be fluffy and steamed and it's just like one of the most delicious things ever and my husband is vegetarian and my mom made a mushroom version for him and I swear it's almost better than the meat one it Mm -hmm. was so so good (laughs) and the thing that I haven't mastered yet well I am proud to say that there was a dish like that but I'm nearly there I can nearly nearly do it nearly 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 almost (laughs) as good as my mom but I I kept kind of making it my, you know, the kind of the first level of it. I will explain what it is in a second. And I kept saying, in 15 years, you know, I will be able to do it. And I think I started saying that 15 years ago. And the other day I tried it my mom's way and it worked. So basically what it is, it's actually a dish that comes from kind of Moldova, Romania area. And it's called Virtuta. Uh, and you basically, you make a filo uh, kind of dough, filo pastry. Uh, so it's a very stretchy dough and you start with it, you roll it out first and then you pick it up by your hands and start stretching it out a little bit, the edges. And then you put it on the back of your hands and start kind of moving your hands up and down and stretching it gently. And this is how I used to do it, you know, but what my mom can do and what I can do now is you can, she throws it in the air, almost like a pizzaiolo with the pizza dough. Uh-huh. So imagine this really thin dough and then you catch it again on the back of your hands and you keep on stretching it and stretching it. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, it's a beautiful uh, thing. So after quite a lot of practice, I'm nearly there. <laughs> but I mean, there are so many things, of course, in my family, they always kind of, uh, well, surprise is not even the right word, you know, when after I've trained to be a chef and everything, I just kind of looked back and appreciated how much skill they have. You know, you, you, you train as a chef, you learn all of these things, and then you're like, damn, how does she do that with the filo pastry, though? That's amazing. Yeah. I wish I had those stories because my mom, she's a horrendous cook. She, no, she, no, she just, she always said I cook to get full. You know, she has no pleasure of cooking. So wow. I, growing up was tough. So that's, that's why I became a chef to, to yeah. basically save the family. So yeah. how was that transition from, because you're working, it was after the financial crisis that you decided to go to the culinary world, right? Why that? And how was the transition from working to a restaurant to writing? So I worked in a restaurant, then I had my oldest son, which was a complete surprise. So kind of like the restaurant time was over. It was impossible to continue working in the restaurant with those hours when you have a really small kid. So I started doing a lot of catering. Actually, any job that came my way, you know, I was a freelancer, I was a first time mom, and it was kind of like this crazy, super busy, intense uh, life. And then at some point I did get a job as a recipe developer for a startup company. And I worked there for a year. 
and then that folded and I thought, oh, but I have this year of experience, uh, A, developing recipes and B, also food styling. So I thought I'll just email people and I'll get some food styling work, but it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it was February, like, so just after Christmas is a really bad time to be getting any kind of freelance work anyway. And second of all, you know, who was I? They were like, well, have you got four years of experience assisting? No. So mm-hmm. no, you're not going to get the job. So I didn't have a job. Uh, and I was, you know, it was quite a, quite a tough time. And then, uh, but within the year before, I kind of sent off a few recipes to the Guardian cook. It's a Guardian supplement, it used to be a Guardian supplement. And they were really fantastic at giving young people, uh, unknown kind of people with interesting backgrounds or different ethnic backgrounds a, a chance. And they did. They published a few of my, of my mom's recipes, essentially. And then an agent spotted them. And she sent me an email and said, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's a book deal in there. And I phoned my mom immediately and I was like, mom, you know, uh, this might happen. So I went to meet my agent and she said, you're fantastic. Your story is great and you're cooking everything, tick every box, but your profile is not there. You know, at that point, I mean, still, isn't it? You have to have like thousands of followers and all of that. And I didn't have that. So she said, keep working on, keep doing your thing and come back to me in a couple of years. But then you know, I don't know. I just kind of didn't. At first, I felt a little bit deflated, but then I thought, mm, no, let's let's pick it up. Let's let's keep doing this thing. So I started uh, emailing different photographers and asking them to do a test shoot to, to test Ukrainian recipes. A lot of them actually refused because you know everyone's perception of Eastern European food was, or a lot of people thought, oh, it's all about cabbage and potatoes. I don't want to mm-hmm. photograph that. But one of them had vision, obviously, Chris Kirkham, who said, yes, let's do this. And we did. And they were beautiful photos. And they ended up in Mamushka in the end. And he ended up shooting it. It was his uh, first or second uh, book, I think. Yeah. And, and then with these photos, and also one thing led to another, a publisher was interested. I called my agent within two months. And I said, look, this crazy thing is happening. There's someone interested. She signed me up. And then there was a bidding war between three publishers to get my book. It was insane. It was kind of going from absolutely nothing. At the same time, stuff was happening in Ukraine, I guess. Ukraine kind of came onto the world, into the world news in a very negative way. So I think for a publisher to see this proposal, which I wrote in, uh, you know, eight hours at night, nighttime, to see something positive in people's, Ukrainian people's lives rather than just headlines, plus these beautiful photos, I guess that's what kind of did it as well. And yeah, and at the same time, in, uh, back in Ukraine, my aunt, Eugenia, who's uh, with my grandma on the front of uh, Mamushka, she was dying from cancer. It was like, it was such a weird time. It was like the most amazing thing was happening in my life. And some of the worst things in my life were happening at the same time. So almost like immediately, I, d- I didn't even feel like I could rejoice. So, you know, only a year later, I think when the book actually came out and I held it and I just felt like, oh my God, this is, yeah, yeah, I got somewhere. (laughs) This is great. And so Mamushka, and I said before, it's true. It's I even I showed Tuliak. I actually have the book with me. It's an an amazing book and I already did a lot of things. And this book is inspired by the strong women in your life, right? And is it true that the title, it's related with the Adams Family movie or something? (laughs) Yes? Yes, yes, it is. It's it's quite ridiculous. But um, basically, in the uh, early 90s, I think, you know, we'd get all of these, um, you know, dodgy videotapes, the first 
foreign movies or whatever would come in after the Soviet Union broke up. And we and every all of the references to Eastern Europe would be very negative. So you'd have like Arnold Schwarzenegger being a Soviet spy or something. It's like, if you die, you die. You know, so it was all super negative. And then mm-hmm. we saw the Adams family. I guess it would, would have been mid-90s by that time. And uh, all of a sudden they go, oh, hey, we're dancing this mamushka dance. And it's a super positive thing. And then he says, oh, we've been taught this dance by our Cossack brothers. So immediately me and my brother were like, Ukraine, you know, <laughs> we're famous. We're in the film. You know, there's some representation of Ukraine there. And then Mamushka, you know, sounds like Mamachka, I guess, in Russian. So we just started calling my mom Mamushka. She's still saved in my phone num- phone as Mamushka. So whenever she calls me, it comes up. And then when the book deal happened, um, I just kind of um, mentioned it to my editor, I think, very casually in, the, in an email. And I said, oh, I'm Mamushka. And they were like, wait, 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 what Mamushka? They were very perceptive. They were, I was like, oh, it's not even a real word, actually. This is just a da 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 And they were like, we love it. You know, why don't we mm-hmm. call it that? And I was like, oh, great. Yeah, that worked. <laughs> so the book had an amazing success, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, you write, uh, it's Caucasus, right? Yeah. And that's more about Georgian and Azerbaijan cuisine. Why was the necessity that you had to write that book? Yeah, when I was... I guess just turned three and my brother was 11. We suddenly took off from Ukraine in a really, you know, old Lada, my dad's Lada. Mm-hmm. And we decided to go and visit my fam- our family in Azerbaijan. So we drove all through Crimea and then through Russia, through Sochi, I think, and then Abkhazia, Georgia, all the way to Azerbaijan and this like really falling apart car. It was crazy. In fact, when they set off, they didn't. They realized that they didn't even let them know that we were coming. So they were like, oh gosh, we must send a telegram that we're coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was this crazy journey and I was pining to go back there. And every time I would come back home to Ukraine, I would fly from London and I, I'd go uh, via Kiev. And that's where my auntie lived, so the half Armenian auntie. And I would stay over at her house all the time and she would cook me food and she would give me food to take on the train. So, and mind you, it's not just the sandwich, it would be like a whole roast chicken, Armenian pie with, you know, stuffed with cabbage, whatever, like all of these things. And then she just started telling me stories about her time when she was growing up in in Azerbaijan. And also they had a house in Karabakh, uh, which is this disputed area. They eventually had to leave Azerbaijan because of this big conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They moved to Kiev. But anyway, her stories were just mind-blowing. How they used to climb walnut trees and uh, they had this swing that would be kind of, you know, swinging over a precipice of this mountain, essentially, you know. When they would go to their summer house in the mountains, they would take a whole goat with them. You know, just like magical stories, very different to the ones that I heard about my my dad's Ukrainian childhood. So I thought, wow, this is, you know, I have a connection there. Maybe I can go and find their old house. And maybe, you know, I can actually do repeat the trip in a way uh, that we did with my family, but I'll do it with my brother. And unfortunately, by that time, the whole thing with Crimea obviously happened and there was no way for me to actually do the road trip that way. But me and my brother flew to Georgia and we did a long kind of uh, research trip all around Georgia. And then we went to Azerbaijan and did some more there. And then we did another few trips with the photographer, Elena Hedwig, and uh, Focus came to life. And a few years after that, just released, right? This summer, you have Summer Kitchens. So was there something that was missing from the first book that you put on this book? Yes, absolutely. So Mamushka was a collection of recipes that I grew up with. It was a super 
personal one where, you know, once I got the book deal, I phoned my mom and I said, look, pick a hundred recipes that we cooked, you know, and most of them were Ukrainian, but there was a little bit of Georgian, a little bit of Armenian, you know, my uh, dad was actually born in Uzbekistan. So then my grandma lived there. So there would be Central Asian dishes as well. And then with, but so then I just felt like, okay, that was so personal, but I don't actually, I haven't been all around Ukraine and it's such a huge country. And I wanted to go into uh, different places in Ukraine and to record different stories and people's stories and people's recipes and to talk about regionality of Ukraine and uh, its diversity, both cultural and gastronomic. And so, yeah, so we did that. And again, six, when, just when Mamushka came out, I very fleetingly mentioned, very casually mentioned summer kitchens to someone in the conversation. And they went, wait, 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 rewind. What is a summer kitchen? And I explained it to them. To our listeners, I will also explain. It's uh, basically a separate uh, one-room house within a few steps away from your main house. It's nothing glamorous, but it's just a kitchen. It's, it's a house where, where it's just a kitchen inside. And the reason why they exist is because back in the day, Ukraine was really hot and you, there were no air cons, whatever. And actually, this is where a young couple's life would start. So somebody would get married. They would get a piece of land if you were somewhere in rural Ukraine. It was possible even during Soviet years. And what they would do first, they would build very quickly this little edifice, you know, this little structure. Mm -hmm. They would put a makeshift bed in there and a stove or a masonry oven if there was a specialist in the, in the village. And then they would build the big house and the, they would put the small holding kind of vegetable patches in and your orchard, etc. during the six warm months of the year. And they would stay in this little place first. And then they would move out and use it, use the small summer kitchen as the summer kitchen. So you'd cook your everyday meals there as well as come September, you would preserve all of your glut. So you'd mm -hmm. ferment, you'd pickle, you know, you'd have a special kitchen workshop, essentially. So yeah, so I explained this to this person who asked me what the summer kitchen was. And they were like, wow, this is magical and amazing. And I went, oh, yeah, you know, like I have, I've had mm -hmm. a couple of realizations like that when you're like, oh, yeah, you <laughs> very interesting. Oh, yeah, summer kitchens. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And I thought, wow, maybe I can start researching it because I didn't know much about its history. I grew up with one, but I had no idea why they existed. And uh, maybe I could write, you know, an article for The Guardian or something. And we did go and research. And um, Elena Heatherwick came with me and took some photos, but nobody would buy the article. So I thought, okay, fine. And I just kind of put it on the shelf for a bit. And then when it came uh, after Caucasus, I just thought, wait a minute, why don't I expand it? And why don't I look? at the whole of Ukraine and its regionality and its diversity through this one thing that unites us, you know, because everywhere in Ukraine, there's a summer kitchen. They're very different. Up north, they're made out of wood and they're, you know, super charming. Where I grew up, they're a little bit more rough. They're just made out of brick and they look a little bit more Soviet maybe in a way. In Southwest, they're made out of this, uh, sh the shells because that's the material that they use there. So, you know, it was the perfect prism to look at Ukraine and its the idiosyncrasies of its regions, yeah, through its window, through the summer kitchen's window. And it just came out, right? It just came in America. It came out on July 14th. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Do you ever envision opening a restaurant focused on the type of food you grew up with? Or do you think it will always be more writing for you? You know what? I do have fantasies about that. It, but in my fantasies, it happens like this. I've got this super, you know, a person who has, you know, money, but is also a really nice person. So it's not just money bags, just a really like a heart of gold person who is on the same wavelength as me. And he, and he or she comes and they say, we would love to invest in your beautiful, soulful restaurant, Olya. 
you can just do the cooking and be the creative mind and we will think of the financial bits and we'll fix the pipes and make sure that your chefs come in on time, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so in this fantasy land, yes, I would love something like that. I think there is, I mean, I don't know what's happening now, to be honest with you, in the restaurant world, but just before everything happened with the coronavirus, you know, maybe there was a niche and a, a place for a restaurant like that because yeah. I, would, I would have employed all of the traditional amazing techniques but would have made it look just a little bit more modern without being too fussy or something yeah. like that but i guess when things go back to normal i'll just keep on doing my pop-ups and supper clubs and stuff and get my kicks uh <laughs> that way because i do mm -hmm. miss chefing i do miss feeding a lot of people that's one of the reasons why i became a chef and also you know the hustle and bustle of service i really miss that so much yeah. so for any listeners with a golden heart with a lot of money just contact olia that's <laughs> we'll take care of that <laughs> Then I'll take 10% of you. Any profit you have, I want 10%. Yes, my agent. Cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, the first memory of taste that you have? Ha! It's probably cucumber because Ukraine is changing now a little bit, but it's still pretty damn seasonal. But during winter months, you'd have everything would be kind of pickled, fermented, all of these vegetables. And of course, you'd have your, you know, tubers or whatever. But One of the first things at the kind of like end of April, beginning of May, if it was a particularly hot summer, you'd get the first cucumbers and they would be a little bit kind of dry and almost sweet, small and prickly. Mm -hmm. And my mom would, I don't know why, I think in other countries they do it as well. She would never cut a salad on the chopping board. She would always have the enamel bowl and she would hold a small knife in her hand and she would just chop it over the bowl. Over, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so it would be that and just the clinking of the cucumber falling into the bowl and also that sweet smell. And also I find it was really kind of like a warm smell because they'd be just picked and, you know, not out of the fridge, not this rigid cold cucumber. It'd be warm mm -hmm. and beautiful and sweet. Oh, I really yeah. missed that. Yeah. yeah, I still cannot convince my mom to get a chopping board because she says, <laughs> too much room in the kitchen. I was like, it's just a chopping board, too much room. She does exactly the same thing. What's the most underrated ingredient for you? Underrated. Actually, I guess what the, you people call it in America is rutabaga. Rutabaga, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we call it Swede here yeah. in the UK. I think it's beautiful. People will be like, <laughs> okay. oh, sweet. Yeah. Oh, it looks a bit funny. It's just like a big parsnip or something or like, a, you know, but it isn't. And actually roasting it whole. There's this great British chef called Tom Hunt and he's just released a book. And one of the recipes in it is He basically does it as he would do ham. So he covers it in this sticky kind of molasses marinade and puts cloves into it. And then you roast it whole until it's all soft inside. It was delicious. It's such a good vegetable. I think okay. it's really underrated. And overrated? Oh, oh, that's my personal demons, I think. But avocado, I can't. Unless it's kind of super heavily seasoned with lemon or lime. You know, if it's a guacamole, love it. Absolutely. But on its own or on toast, ugh, no freaking way. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you. Okay. I just don't get it but maybe it's personal <laughs> the best breakfast you can have okay in ukraine we do this ukrainian breakfast basically avocado on toast yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm just so sick of it <laughs> uh, no we do a we've got this pork fat called stalo which is very similar to ukrainian lardo i guess uh, so it's mm -hmm. cured salted pork fat And you fry it until it releases all the fat and stuff. And then you would put whole, and our tomatoes in the south of Ukraine are incredible, better than Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> very controversial statement there. And we'd put these tomatoes in sliced rounds, you know, as thick as a steak. 
and the tomatoes kind of like start frying and then releasing the juices and then you crack a couple of eggs in between them and it's just one of the most delicious things you've got the eggs you've got the little bit of porky fattiness and then mm-hmm. you've got these really juicy tomato juicy tomatoes a hunk of bread and i'm in heaven what's the strangest combination food wise that some people might do it that you cannot accept oh that's a really hard one these are the fun questions right They're yeah you're, exactly you're putting me on the spot yes <laughs> a nice sneaking uh, like eating me into it exactly I, I <laughs> strange combinations hmm oh it's a really difficult one oh can we do a next one i can't think of anything too strange i mean there are so many but i can't and banana mayo sandwich no i mean people do, huh? people do. banana and mayo sandwich people do that no oh oh i have a whole list Leah. one day we schedule a, a just a yeah, conversation a just because I teach classes and it's one of the things I actually ask my students, something that they eat that other people might think it's weird combination wise. And I've said this before here, but someone told me popcorn in tomato soup. What the? Yeah, exactly. You got it. Yeah, I got it. See? I got it. Okay. It's a Ukrainian one. So it's not weird to me because I woke up with it. So you gave me an idea. So those are mm-hmm. normal things for some Americans, right? Yeah. So I've got one really weird one that we do in Ukraine. So you get your stale bread and then you make, you dip it in egg and you do like French toast. Essentially you fry it, but then you rub it a little bit, a little bit with garlic and then you put mayo on it and then you put grated cheese on top. And that's oh, just okay. like, yeah, right? Yeah. Sounds weird, okay. yeah? Mm-hmm. Delicious. Delicious, okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. That's two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that exceeded expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Chickens for sure. Oh, uh, wait, was it what are no. the chickens? No. Say it, say it, say it. <laughs> <laughs> just the chickens. Just chicken? So turning chickens means a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that exceeded expectations. So you've been turning more chickens or you've been breaking more dishes? I don't know. That is a really difficult one. So, so chickens is experience. Chick- so have I? Yes. <laughs> every time, every time you go to the grocery <laughs> store, that's experience. And dishes, it's someone that exceeded all expectations. People like didn't I expect. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's the dishes. Yeah. Maybe the dishes. Okay. Maybe the dishes. So, <laughs> we come to the part that I tell my guests to sell their fish. In Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means you talk about yourself. So, what's in the future for you? You know, where people can find you and all of that. I love your. I'm gonna start learning Portuguese. <laughs> so, what's next? First of all, I need to get summer kitchens off the ground. This summer is extremely weird for everyone, I think, but it's also like a super weird market. Like people are just not buying books. So I'm just working my ass off and trying to get the book off the ground. Mm-hmm. Once I do that and mission accomplished and hopefully it will reach out to people and people will love it, then I'm probably going to start researching a new project. Not quite sure what that is exactly yet, but I have some ideas. But every time I go back to Ukraine and or Georgia or whatever in Eastern Europe, I visit a flea market and I scour it for some really old cookbooks. So I've got quite a collection there and I'm, you know, really excited to actually dive in because of most of the recipes, for example, in summer kitchens, a lot of them are, almost all of them are from the ground, from research, from me going into people's homes. Mm-hmm. So it'd be actually interesting to really do some research from these old books. And then what else is happening? Oh, and hopefully have a month where I can go back to Ukraine and see my family. I don't know if that's going to be possible yet, but I'm keeping everything crossed for that. Okay. 
just a matter of curiosity, how many languages can you, can you speak? So I can speak Ukrainian, Russian, English, Italian, and a little bit of Spanish. And no Portuguese. No, man. Uh, but, N- you know, chicken, chicken's plates, I'm getting there. Saudade, I know all about that's, that. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Olya, thank you very much. This was a pleasure. I had a great time. For everybody listening, go buy all the three books, not just one. Buy the whole pack <laughs> on Amazon or something. The books are amazing. And thank you very much for coming. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review. I only accept five stars, by the way. Tell all your friends about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you have any questions, you can send an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. See you next time. Adeus.